God have mercy on us, as always. Well, this is the seventh day of Unleavened Bread. Wraps up this festival. This evening it's sundown. Let's ask a question then today. Since you've been in God's church, come to a knowledge of the truth, what's the number one thing that we've all looked forward to? What is it? The number one thing that we've always anticipated and looked forward to. I don't think that should take too long to figure out the resurrection of the dead when all this will end and we will be glorified and become God because that was what we learned in the church was the purpose and the plan of God and that it was that we were to become God at the time of the first resurrection. So that was the easiest question. Next question. What's the second most thing we have looked forward to since we have been in the church of God? The second most thing. Would you be turning there, please, as I ask this question? Got that one figured out? Well, maybe I'm on the right track today after all. I hadn't really thought of this until this morning, but as I think back from even my childhood, I remember articles coming out in The Plain Truth. I remember comments being made in even the Bible Correspondence Course. And from early sermons at the feast back in the 50s, they often turned to a particular scripture and often wrote about, in the plain truths and so on, a particular thing. Let's go to Matthew 24 and see if we can find it. I think this will become obvious once we look at it a little bit. It's talking about the end coming in chapter 24. The disciples ask him about that. And he explained a few things. And then in verse 14, he said that after all these other things happen, the famine and pestilence and wars and earthquakes and things we see happening more and more and more day by day, after these things happen, <clears throat> the gospel will get preached, and then shall the end come. So it then says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, you can go back to Daniel 9 and see that the temple has been restored and there's an abomination set up by the soon arriving beast and false prophet. And they will set up an abomination on the, in the temple of God on the altar that has been built. And he says, when you see this, whoso reads, let him understand let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. And then it talks about, if you're on the housetop, don't go back into the house. If you're out in the field, don't take, go back to get any clothes. And woe if you're with child or give suck in those days. It's going to be an arduous and a fast flight. For then shall be great tribulation, such as not since the beginning of the world of this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now, I read here and there in some of the alternative media by people who refer at least somewhat to prophecies, and they'll say, I think the tribulation is here. Uh, they read of the great tribulation here in Matthew 24 and in Revelation. So, they have various ways of thinking that this must be here because they're seeing trouble. They saw this coronavirus start and they say, this must be the beginning of the tribulation, or we're in it now. 
But is that what Matthew 24 says? It says, when you see that abomination set up in the temple is when you flee, and that will set off great tribulation such as not ever been before. So it hasn't started yet. But we read all those articles about Petra, Mr. Armstrong, riding around it. There'd be pictures of him in the plain truth, riding through the rose-red city. And uh, the picture there at the end of the seek where you come out and see these uh, Greek or Roman columns, whatever they are, uh, at the entryway. And he thought Petra was the place, so we anticipated that, and we got lots of sermons about it, and anticipation and imagination about how we'd get there, fly on airplanes, uh, go right to Petra, and then some realize it says, well, if you're in the land of Judea, then flee into the mountains. Uh, so we must gather at Jerusalem first. That's where the airports are anyway. So you got to go to Jerusalem, and then it was thought maybe walk from there to Petra. These people are living there, wherever this is talking about, they're living there. Because you got your house and you're not supposed to go down or you're not go back into your house to get anything if you're in the field. You are to flee immediately. The dog or the cat don't matter. Your change of clothes doesn't matter. And you don't need a pack of toilet paper. Just go. But we thought, since Jordan, we thought, was Moab and Ammon, that you flee to Moab, and they protect you, according to Isaiah 15, 16, and so on. And that was the place to go. And unless you can think of something different, I submit this was, this was our second most anticipated event. We may have thought of the first resurrection more, and that's what we're here for, is to be in the resurrection. And that's deliverance, isn't it? It's deliverance from the physical to the spiritual. And then second most, we knew trouble was coming, so we wanted deliverance in this physical life as well. So the first stage was physical deliverance. Go to Petra and be in safety when all this trouble comes. And second then was eternal safety in the kingdom of God when we're transformed. So deliverance then, whether I got these exactly right or not, but some kind of deliverance has always been on our mind. Deliverance in some way. Now, how about some faith? Has God ever delivered people in the past? Well, we could go back to Genesis 6. Read the account of Noah. We've talked about it several times lately. And the interesting parallel between the hundred years it took and what it appears to be a hundred years here at the end until that deliverance at the first resurrection. But uh, wasn't Adam, I'm Adam, uh, Noah lifted off the earth? We are to be lifted off the earth and meet Christ. And he built a big boat and he was lifted off the earth. Uh, there was a type of baptism there, and baptism is a type of a transformation. When we go from death to life, and where we go in the resurrection, from this life which ends in death, and some will be dead, to a resurrection of life. So, we have those parallels back there, and... Uh, you and I have not waited yet as long as Noah did. Uh, Enoch was taken away at age 365, even ahead of Noah. Uh, he was a righteous man living in a very violent, terrible age. And God delivered him from that. He took him away. But... 
A different deliverance came with Noah where he lived, he and his family. So God delivered them from that violent, sin-sick world they lived in and brought them forward so that nobody existed at that point but that family. It had been totally delivered from the entire civilization that it lived in. A civilization that God hated and a civilization that Noah hated because he had to deal with it day by day and by those nasty, rotten, violent, uh, sinful attitudes that he saw saw all around him. Just as you and I, uh, it says, we sigh and cry for the abominations that we see. And is that not what we do? We hear about abortion. We hear about the Child Protective Services selling children. 85 to 88% of the children that go into Child Protective Services, at least in some areas, have been proven now to go into sex trafficking and slavery. Child Protective Services is supposed to be there, we think, to protect children. From what? Their parents. And to make money for those who like to make money off of children being sold and like to molest children whom they have bought or have been sold for their use. And we see all these things and we sigh and we cry for the abominations we see about us. And we want deliverance. Well, God delivered Noah. That's a historical record. It did happen. And it happened at the exact time that God had foreseen and chosen for it to happen. <coughs> it wasn't 89 or 111 years. It was 100 years. And the ark lifted off right on cue. So there's a deliverance. That ought to make us feel a little better that God has done it in the past. He's good to His Word. I'm not going to go back and rehearse a lot of that. Let's go to Exodus uh, 12 to start with. And I'll rehearse a bit of this. I don't want to take the time to go through it all. But you'll remember how Moses was born there. And he got taken in by Pharaoh's daughter and grew up enjoying the opportunities and the pleasures of Pharaoh's government. And then when he killed the Egyptian and knew it must be found out, he took off, headed for the desert, and there he lived in the land of Midian until God said, all right, it's time to deliver my people. <laughs> so he sent Moses back, and here was Moses, one man, riding a camel maybe, back into Egypt, or Mithraim. And Israel didn't really remember him, and I think Pharaoh had also died, had a different Pharaoh, and uh, nobody knew Moses. <laughs> But Moses was coming back to deliver Israel from that land. And God had said that it would happen. So he came back and he says, God's going to deliver you. And they says, okay, which God would that be? Uh, that was, they actually asked that. Which God? Because they had been introduced to many, many, many gods there in Egypt. Flies, grasshoppers, frogs crocodiles, the river itself. They worshipped a lot of different things in that corrupt land. Well, this is the eternal God of creation. Well, that was a strange one. They hadn't heard of that one. Uh, maybe they remembered some of their history going back to Joseph over 400 years back and how they had gotten there. That story had probably come down, but it had lost its punch. It had lost its power. It had lost everything, basically, because all they could see was what was in front of them, which had become abject slavery. So then God sends Moses, who announces that he's there to deliver them, 
And he says, I'm going to talk to Pharaoh, or at least my brother Aaron is. I'll be along. And uh, we're going to tell him that we're going to go out in the desert and keep a feast to this God that I'm telling you about. And they said, oh, that sounds good. We'd like to get out of slavery. Let's, let's do this thing. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, uh, we'd like to have some time to go out and worship our God. Well, this had to be strange to him because he knew all the gods and he knew that these people were basically following those gods. They had come to that in over 400 years to adopting that which was right in front of them. So, had to have been a puzzle in his mind. What god are you talking about? You, and you want to you wanna quit work and go out and, and uh, play in the desert? I don't think so. So, he got a plague. And that plague fell on Israel as well. Now, they're trying to believe in deliverance, okay? They've heard about deliverance. They've heard they're going to go out of here. They're not going to serve the Egyptians anymore. And then Moses, this Savior goes and talks to Pharaoh, and then they get this plague. Wait a minute. So Moses comes back and talks to them and coddles them a bit, and he says, well, Pharaoh hardened his heart, but uh, this thing's going to happen. Believe me. Trust me, I heard last night. Trust me, people, this is going to happen. I'm going to go talk to Pharaoh again. This time it'll, it'll all work out. So he and Aaron go and talk to Pharaoh again. And another plague comes. Now this is already starting to get a little tough for Moses and Aaron. Now we've got to go back and talk to the people again. And they're in the middle of this plague. And he says, it's going away. Don't worry about it. God told me. Which God? The God I've been telling you about. He told me that you'd be delivered. So I'm going to go talk to Pharaoh again. Trust me, this will all work out. So he went and talked to Pharaoh again, and Pharaoh said, well, maybe so. I, I may not get all the details of each of these straight. I'm not going to go back and read them all. But then he got his heart hardened. <clears throat> as soon as he said, okay, Moses and Aaron went back. <clears throat> Good news. Pharaoh said, okay. And then another plague hits. <laughs> you may be following along there. You know, the frogs, the lice, and so on. Here comes another one. Bad stuff. And it goes away. And Moses says, uh, "Hey, uh, we're still here. Uh, this this is uh, this is Aaron, and, and this is me, and God's promised deliverance. So we're going to go back and talk to Pharaoh again. This happened what? Four times, five times before it finally made a separation. This all came down on Israel." So Pharaoh says, okay, go do your thing. And then the plague hits again, and he hardens his heart. He said, no way you're going. This one on what? Made a separation. Finally, they quit hitting Israel. Because it was getting hard for Moses and Aaron to go back and say, this is going to happen, trust me. They were having trouble believing him. I wonder even if Moses and Aaron began to wonder, <laughs> can we trust him? But on and on it went. And Pharaoh kept hardening his heart and wouldn't let him go. But by this time, these things were hitting Mitzrayim so hard that it was destroying their whole empire. Their crops, their animals, everything was going. Uh, 
Then we come to chapter 12. Now we get a little different read here because Moses instructs them now. Things are going to be different, trust me. I want you to kill a lamb for each household. And I want you to smear blood on the pillars of your around your door. Because there's going to be a big happening tonight. We're going to have this Passover and eat this lamb, but he says, I want your shoes on your feet. I want you to have your staff in your hand, your kneading troughs where you normally make bread. You don't have time to let it rise for the morrow because they let their bread rise generally overnight. And then they were ready to cook it in the morning and it'd be all nice poofy bread. But he said, there's not going to be time tonight. So don't don't even put the leavening in it, uh, because God's going to come and do some things that are going to get you out of here. Well, I will give it one more try, Moses. Uh, you know, you keep saying this, and at least the plagues did quit coming on us. Now they're coming on just the Mitzrayimites. So, yeah, maybe so we'll. We'll do this thing. So they got him a lamb. Uh, this goes back a few days because they had to select it ahead and so on. But he began telling them about it. So that evening, about sunset, they killed the lamb. They roasted it. And they ate it. But they had their kneading troughs with the unleavened bread packaged on it, tied on. Their sandals on their feet dressed, and their staff in their hand as they ate that evening. And about midnight, Christ came and killed everything firstborn in Egypt. The kids, older people who who were firstborn of their family, all the animals that were firstborn, everything firstborn died. And there were screams of agony all over Mitzrayim that night. And this time, Pharaoh sent a message and says, Rise, rise up and get you forth from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Eternal as you have said. Whatever, just go. And the Mitzrayimites were urging upon the people that they might send them out, kick them out, get them out in haste. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And they did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed or took of the silver and gold and jewels and raiment from the Mitzrayimites as they went. They lent them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Mitzrayimites. So not only had they lost all their food, all their animals, now they lost their gems, their gold, their silver. They were spoiled. Israel took the spoils of Mitzrayim. So they went out of there very, very wealthy ex-slaves. Now they believe Moses. Maybe as they went, they went out with a high hand, it says, that night, from midnight forward. And having been thrust out, they wanted to go, and they got a kick in behind the behind as they went. Hey, this is working pretty good. So I don't know whether they used to high-five back then or not, but they had a high hand and felt released and jubilant and joyful, and this is wonderful. They went out 430 years to the day from the day Jacob had entered into Mitzrayim looking for food, exactly when God had prescribed that that would occur. Now, this is an incredible deliverance, is it not? Here they were, 430. 30 years in that land, not in God's promised land, but in that land. Hadn't been abject slaves the whole time, but most of the time they had been. 
Now, God had showed them, if they remembered their history, his deliverance, had he not? Had not Joseph been sold into slavery by his brothers and then went and was finished being raised in Mitzrayim? And then he was framed and spent seven years in prison for something he hadn't done and was delivered from that. And he saved the whole empire of Mitzrayim because God had told him to save up food for seven years because there's seven years of drought and famine coming. So he did what God said and Pharaoh blessed him in it and put him in charge of everything. Now there's a pretty good deliverance from houseboy who was framed and went to jail for seven years to being in charge of everything in the whole empire. That's a pretty mighty deliverance on an individual basis. And it was a type of what would come later where the whole nation would be delivered by one man, Moses, from God when the time was right. So that night, can you even imagine it? Let's say here's the city of St. George, or let's, let's do a little more than that. Let's go to L.A. or New York somewhere. In, in the middle of the night, one night, everything that was the firstborn of man and beast just dies. That'd be a lot of dead people. A lot of dead people. If you got two kids, one of them dies. If you got five kids, one of them dies. If you were the firstborn of five kids, you died. Probably millions of people right there in that one city, much less this old nation. And that's the way it was in the Mitzrayimite Empire. So that was quite a deliverance, was it not? And they went walking out of there with their animals, with their kneading troughs on their back, and they'd been told to all go to a certain area where they would spend the next night, and then they would begin marching on out of Ephraim, Ephraim, Mitzrayim. And that went on then for a total of seven days, starting midnight on the first day, right after Passover. As soon as Pharaoh saw his firstborn child die uh, and heard the screams and moans from his servants and everybody else in the palaces, and a cry went up all over, I mean, it wasn't long till he said, get out of here. So from midnight on, they were on their way out and traveled all the next day to get to the assembly place. Once they arrived there, they spent the night, got a night's sleep, and started their organized march out. Tens and hundreds all lined up. They'd been pre, pre-organized. Moses and Aaron were pretty busy during all this period of time because they had appointed captains of tens, captains of hundreds, and they were all lined up in rows like an army when they started marching out of there. So very, very well organized. And there may have been as many as three and a half million people there. That's a lot of people to line up in rows and start marching out. And a lot of animals with them. And animals create problems of their own if you ever tried to hurt animals. They're worse than people. They all run everywhere and they got four legs to do it on. So it can be a problem. Anyway, you can't say this wasn't a wonderful deliverance and it came right on time when God had it all planned. And then, more trouble comes. They were so happy. Let's go to chapter 13. Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Mitzrayim, out of the house of bondage, or by strength of hand, the Eternal brought you out from this place. There shall no leavened bread be eaten. This day they came out in the month of Abed. 
He went on down and said, Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. They carried their leavening with them, I'm sure. Uh, They just didn't put it in the bread. And seven days later, they could put it in and have leavened bread. But not until that time. So nothing that was baked with leavening was seen in all their quarters that whole time. And then he says, you're supposed to tell your sons and your sons' sons about this. It's going to be an ordinance from year to year. So they're being told here on the second or third day, or I guess it was still maybe the first day, uh, that this is to be remembered and you're not to forget it. By strength of hand, God did this. Now, how long did it take them to forget? Let's move on. Let's see, I want to pick it up in uh, chapter 14. The Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel if they turn and encamp at a certain place by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, so he'll come after them. But I'm going to take care of Pharaoh. So he told Moses this. And then Pharaoh started out. So here we are on the seventh day of unleavened bread. And that's the day we are in here at the moment. And here's the story for today. Pharaoh wondering, why have we let them go from serving us? So he made his ready his chariot. He had 600 chosen chariots, verse 7, and all the chariots of Egypt and captains over every one of them. So his own particular special forces of 600 plus all the others. Huge army. And his heart was hardened, and he pursued after the children of Israel. And the children had gone out with a high hand. They were still happy. Wow, we've we've got our freedom. But the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them at this camp. Oh boy, and when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. They'd been used to being beaten and whipped. They'd been being used to treated as abject slaves. And when they saw this army coming after them, they were sore afraid, scared to death. And the children of Israel cried out to the Eternal. Now, what did they cry? They cried out in fear. Maybe some of them said, deliver us, deliver us, but they didn't have a whole lot of faith that it would happen. The trust me thing wasn't working so well here. They said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wasn't there room there to bury us? Why would you bring us clear out here to get us killed? Wherefore have you dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Mitzrayim? Now he had just told them a few days before, remember this deliverance. They had taken their children with no dead, with the gold and the silver and the gemstones, with the animals everything out and been delivered in the middle of the night with an incredible deliverance. But they forgot that real fast the minute they saw Pharaoh coming. Boy, did they forget that in a hurry. I was recounting to you, I think, a couple of days ago, some healings we've had right here. We need a whole bunch more, don't we? But is it it easy to forget that which we have had? Is it easy to begin to wonder, can this happen? Will this happen? And yet if we think back not too long ago, we've seen some. Have we not? Hmm. But anyway, surprisingly, they were scared when they saw these chariots coming. 
I say that with tongue in cheek. Is not this the word that we did tell you in Mitzrayim, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. So they had used this line on Moses and Aaron before. They'd said, You know, we go out there and we're all out in the desert, and maybe it'd be better just to stay here. At least we got food, at least we got drink. Anyway, they brought that up in a hurry. Now, you do need some leadership when you get this kind of fear and a bad attitude and no faith and no trust and people scared stiff. Somebody has to stand up and show the way. So that's what Moses did. He said to the people, Fear you not. Stand still. And see the salvation of the eternal, which he will show to you today. For the Mitzrayimites whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. <coughs> the eternal shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. You're not supposed to run. You're to stand still and see the salvation. You're not supposed to go forward and fight, because God's going to fight for you. And the Eternal said to Moses, Wherefore you cry to me, speak to the children of Israel that they go forward. Now, forward meant what? You have all these chariots coming behind you, and you have the Red Sea in front of you. Would you rather be stabbed or drowned? <laughs> You're going to swim out there a little far, for a little ways and the chariots are going to come right on out in the water with the horses and there you are helpless in the water and being stabbed with spears and swords and you're all going to die anyway, either from a sword or from drowning. So God tells Moses, why are you still standing here talking and trying to convince these people? Tell them now to go forward. All right, like a bunch of lemmings being told to go forward. But lift you up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I will harden the hearts of the Mitzrayimites, and they shall follow them. And I will get me honor over them. And they'll know that I am the Eternal, when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. So they're told, trust God and move forward. Now we had a Bible study about not trusting and indeed, the Bible says, trust no man. But the Bible says over and over and over again to trust and believe in God. And it also says over and over and over, trust and believe those whom God sends as humans to show you. Because they were sent from God for that purpose. Just as Moses, just as Noah, just as others had been. Uh, send up a prayer for Nelson. He's having a lot of pain. Pardon? Oh, George. Oh, yeah, George went out. Yeah, his, it's not Nelson. I'm sorry. I was just trying to piece it together as I talked. But uh, George, I wonder why George was going out. He's Probably his stomach's bothering him, would be my guess. So, his what? Oh, his legs. Well... We do need some healings. We do need some help from God. There's no doubt about it. So anyway, we know the story then. The sea parted, and the east wind blew, and there was a, the cloud of fire that had been in front of them to lead them where God wanted them to go, now flip-flopped and went behind them so that Pharaoh couldn't get to them. 
while the wind blew and the sea opened. Then it dried out overnight from that wind and they could walk through. So they started through. And on their way through, maybe at some point there, the fire lifted from behind them and here comes Pharaoh and his chariots. And maybe the last stragglers are getting out the other side. I don't know exactly when Pharaoh started in, but uh, here they came. And as soon as they all got in, and in far enough they couldn't get out, God turned the water loose and drowned every last one of them. Now there is an even more incredible deliverance in some respects than on Passover night itself, where they were broken loose, but they still had their enemies there. So they fled out, but then they got out seven days later. Here's their enemies on them again. This time, every enemy was destroyed. Mitzrium had not one soldier left. Their enemies were gone. What an incredible deliverance. Now, I can read you another one. I can read you one where we're in Judea, having built the temple, having built Jerusalem. And at the end of the building of Jerusalem in 70 weeks, God says, flee to the mountains. And we go to Scripture and we find that where we had thought we were going to go all those years was wrong. We're going to Zion. And, but the same thing applies. Hurry. Don't go back to your house. Just when you see the armies gathering about Jerusalem, you get out of there right now. And mind you, don't be pregnant and don't be have a nursing child. They need to be older than that. Get out of there or you will die. If you go back for anything, if you hesitate for a moment, you're going to die. And he turns Satan loose on you. Kicks him down out of heaven, Revelation 12. And he comes after the woman, the church. And he sees her fleeing to Zion. And he sends an army that is just gathered about Jerusalem after her. And what happens? The army is swallowed up in a flood. Didn't we just read something like that? It's going to happen again. An incredible deliverance to physical safety in a place called Zion. The place of refuge. Enter into your chambers, I read to you the other day, where you'll be protected. And that chamber is... Zion. Do you believe it? Trust me, God says. He told them, trust me. Moses told them, trust me, God's going to do this. And you know what? God did it. God did it. It's a matter of history. This story is retold almost countless times through the rest of the Old Testament and the prophecies about how God brought you through. They sang about it in chapter 15 here in Exodus. It happened. God does what He says He'll do. Now, they got out of there. They sang the sing of Moses, song of Moses. They sung the song of, Mitzr- of, of uh, Miriam. They were so happy, so joyous. <coughs> you know, this is a type of the resurrection of the dead. Nobody ever thought about that or not. Now, they were delivered physically there, but all their enemies died. Incredible deliverance. Do you realize that we go through Passover and we go through seven days of unleavened bread and we are supposed to be keeping 
or thinking or doing something, and that is putting sin out of our lives, concentrating, focusing on that for those seven days. And it ends every year, doesn't it? Always has. And on that seventh day, did you have sin completely put out of your life? Or did you go on in life and maybe sin a day or two or three or four later, or all four days later, in some form or fashion? Yeah, we have. But you know, there's a time coming when we will be delivered from sin entirely. Now, they weren't delivered from sin at the Passover. They were delivered from the bondage, and they went out in the desert. But they were not delivered from Mitzrayim until the seventh day. That's when the whole kit and caboodle of Pharaoh's army died. That's when they were delivered. And Mitzrayim is a type of sin. They were delivered from sin on that seventh day. Now, God does not say He's going to to deliver us completely from sin on the seventh day of unleavened bread. That is not the main type that is here. But I think there is certainly a type of the first resurrection. They were saved from death at the hands of Pharaoh there at the Red Sea. Miraculously, with the water parting, which is against nature and just isn't done. Beyond comprehension as a human being. And all their enemies were destroyed. Now what happens in the first resurrection? The last enemy that shall be conquered, it says there, is death. So at the first resurrection, you were totally delivered from sin. You will never sin again. Now, that's pictured by the Feast of Trumpets. But they, symbolically there, were free from Mitzrayim or sin, and completely free, because all their enemies were destroyed. Now, Satan is going to come after us. He's going to send the Assyrian army in a coalition of people against this nation. And God says, They are going to come then as a beast power to the newly erected temple and they are going to defile it and we are to flee for our very lives as they fled there at Passover. And I think that this will come at Passover when this particular deliverance comes. That's probably when the temple will be defiled. And you flee to Zion, which is God's place of protection. You're not fully protected from sin at that point, but you're in a safe place until your final removal from sin occurs at the resurrection. You realize you will, from that resurrection on, you will never ever sin again. You won't even be tempted to. You wouldn't even care to. If some, someone suggests you, you'd say, nah, doesn't interest me. Because your nature will be changed. Totally changed. No longer will you have a desire to sin. You won't be tempted to sin. Because you will have been totally transformed into a new creature. Eternal and immortal. So their enemies were destroyed on this last day of unleavened bread. Now, they were to go on out, and they were going to get upset again when they didn't have water and when they didn't have sufficient food, and they were going to complain and gripe against Moses and God again. And they were going to, when Moses went up to get the holy royal law that would make a peaceful, wonderful society if followed, they decided they would have a party and dance around naked for a few days. And God was not happy with that. They wound up 
having to wander for 40 years till every last one of their carcasses dropped on the desert floor and their children could go to the promised land. But you know, God had said, I'm going to deliver you. He delivered them. He killed, he destroyed a whole empire. The whole thing was gone. America is going to be gone. The whole empire, absolutely, totally destroyed. And everybody left taken captive. And a sword after them. Same thing's about to happen. And we're seeing the beginnings of it, are we not? I think already. Now it is upon us. It's not a prophecy for the future. It's a prophecy in progress, if you will. And it's going to get worse and worse until it is totally destroyed. Plague after plague. Trouble after trouble. Just like at the beginning of Mithraim. And we're here in some of it. But we're going to be taken out before the global government takes full charge. The day they take full charge will be the day God relinquishes His temple, His altar to them. They will be fully in charge then. And we will be fleeing for our lives to Zion. Now God made good on His promise. He got them out of there. He got them out in good shape. Then they began to complain and they let down on their part. And God says, it's always contingent on whether you'll do your part. So their children wandered with them, and then 40 years later, God sent them into the promised land after having sent spies in to spy out the land, to check it all out, be sure everything would work, and they'd be delivered from this waste wilderness and go into the promised land where we'll have everything that we could possibly need. Moses had told us, and he wrote it back here in Deuteronomy, this land will have everything we need. Nothing will be lacking. Oh, what a wonderful land. <clears throat> so Moses said, all right, before we go in, we'll spy out the land, check it out. So he sent these men. And they found grapes so big they couldn't carry them. They found... Plenty and prosperity, a land of milk and honey with everything you could imagine that those people who weren't God's people were having and enjoying. And then they looked at these guys and they says, they all got swords and they all got spears and they got horses and we're out here walking. And these guys are big. These guys are scary. So they come back to Moses to report. And all of them but two said, Oh, we can't go in there. There's lots of good stuff in there I'd like to have, but those guys will kill us. We can't go in there. And only Caleb and Joshua said, There's good stuff in there, and we're going to have it, and we're going to go in, and God will fight our battles. <clears throat> And we'll take the land. Let's do it. And Moses said, okay, do it. I'm going to go up on the hill and die. You guys go ahead. So Passover came. And here was the river. Full of spring runoff. You couldn't cross it without being swept away. Well, okay, God said we're going to do this. How's it going to happen? And then the water just began to back up. It just backed up. And as much water was coming down that river for spring runoff, it must have backed up hugely because it backed up long enough for, I don't know how many were left, all the kids and all the kids that had been born, just the original adults had died, so there must have still been possibly millions of people there. And they all had to march across 
while that river kept backing up and backing up and made a huge lake. And when they got across and went way on over the bank, I'm sure, because when that was turned loose, it was going to be deep and wide. So they got across and God turned it loose. And there was a city there called Jericho. And there were people up on the walls watching this mass army on the other side of the river. And they probably felt kind of secure. I don't think they can get across the river. We may be all right here, you know. And then they see that wall of water begin to build up. And the rest of it just drain away. And here's dry ground. And here comes this mass of people across the river. They've never seen anything like this before. Did you ever watch a river back up? No, hadn't happened. And here they came. And then God said, march around the city for seven days. Okay. And then they blew the trumpets and the walls all fell down. Wow. And they were able to take the city and kill everybody but one harlot who had helped the spies escape. Wow, that's a pretty good deliverance. Now, when God says, trust me, do you begin to get the picture? Does this sort of give us the picture? That that what he wanted to do all those years in worldwide didn't turn out to be correct knowledge, didn't turn out to be the right place, didn't turn out to be the right time. And the one who had told us those things, who did give us the truth, essentially, died. And that's nearly 34 years ago. Nearly 35 years ago. But his teaching that we would be delivered was correct. Exactly where we would go and exactly when we would, when we would go, he did not know. But he saw in this book, promise of deliverance there in Matthew 24, and he interpreted it as best he could with the knowledge that he had at the time. So people have called him a false prophet because he didn't get the where and the when just right. But he got the story right. God will deliver. Herbert Armstrong wasn't going to be around and God knew it. So the exact where and the exact when, he didn't need to know. And in fact, it would not have been good for the church to have known that far ahead of time where the right place was. Because it's here in this country. And people have prematurely begun to come. And it would have made a mess. So God withheld that information, just like He did. Remember, we were talking about the disciples And he told Peter how he was going to die and how people would lead him and kill him. And he was telling him in what manner he would die. And Peter said, well, yeah, but what about John? (laughs) Is he going to die too? And Christ didn't say yes or no. He said, that's my business. Mind your own business, Peter. I'll take care of John. I'm just telling you what you're going to do. So Christ didn't even give Peter the answer, did he? He didn't give John the answer either, did he? He didn't give anybody the answer. Now, they were to learn later on, way down the road, that it wasn't coming in their day. But Christ did not explain that to them. He let them think. And by the things that he said... You would have thought that it was coming in your day. Now, he let Herbert Armstrong think it was coming in his day. And all of us, and many of us who have died since. And it didn't come. Not just him, but thousands of members have died since then. And they died not knowing when or where. It's only been recently that we've begun to learn when and where. The where we got down pretty good. The wind's a little iffy yet, but we know it's very, very close. Very close. Because we see these prophecies now starting to happen right before our very eyes, and we are self-quarantining to one degree or another, 
because a plague has come upon our country. And there's going to be more. This is not the end of it until it's all completely destroyed. Now, God has told us that, and he's told us that we can be delivered out of it. Hebrews 11 is a chronicle of a lot of different people, mostly individuals, who were delivered from whatever they were facing. Whether it was a burning, fiery furnace, a lion's den, uh, the young widow son dying and Elijah bringing it back. A lot of those are mentioned there in Hebrews 11. In some cases, it was a whole nation that was, de- was delivered, as in Gideon mentioned there. 300 men delivered the whole nation just by lighting a fire and hollering. And the Assyrians killed each other. God tells us here at the end, the Assyrians are going to come, try to come upon us. And he will send them fleeing just like in Gideon's day. He says he's going to deliver us, and they'll try to make us slaves, just like they did in Mitzrayim. But they'll bop us on the nose a time or two and be sent away. That's about Isaiah 7, about 8 or 9, 10. Maybe it's 11, somewhere right in there, beginning of 11 maybe even. It's not going to work. He's going to deliver us. So he delivers us physically, And then, He's going to deliver us eternally. Will He find faith on earth? When He says, believe me, trust me, can we? Yes. Can we trust these men whom He has used to write down the whole story? Yes. Because he tells us in Isaiah 55, we will have a land like Eden with everything we would want in it. And he's going to take it away from the Ammonites and Moabites who now dwell there and give it to his people as the promised land. And they will have everything they need. Wow. It's going to happen. It's all right there in the book. Most of the church doesn't know about it yet. They still don't know where, really even why, to build a temple and to build Jerusalem. They don't understand that. They don't know that. They certainly don't know where, because some of them are still hanging on to their Petra ticket. Got it right there in their wallet, just ready to go, they think. Ticket's punched. Now, this day pictures deliverance at the Red Sea. And in a way, it pictures deliverance at the resurrection, when the last enemy, death, is conquered, and we have no more enemies, Satan is bound, and we live forever in the kingdom of God. So this day has very, very rich meaning. Nelson touched on it a bit last night. Because, yeah, as human beings, we've lived with human beings, haven't we? And we've been made all kinds of promises by human beings, either in our own family or by politicians or by football coaches or whoever, that we'd be the winners. Trust me, we're going to do this. Trust me, I'll take care of you. And we tend to be a little skeptical. We tend to be a little distrustful. And God tells us that's the way it'll be with mankind. But he says, you can't trust them, but you can trust me. And you can trust those whom I have sent and given you this message. Here's a book full of it. And we read this, and it gives us the answers. (coughs) Herbert Armstrong and most of the church have read it as well, and they still don't know the answers. They don't know when. They don't know where, and they don't really even know why. But they're going to learn. They're going to hear of signs and wonders that Christ is working 
out at Zion. And then they're going to begin to say, I think I'll go to Zion. This world's getting to be a worse place every day. If I stay where I am, I'm going to die. I'm going to Zion and find Christ. And here they'll come. Because then they'll know where. They will have probably learned at least partially why. And certainly they'll know when, because financial collapse in the Assyrian army is right behind them. It is worked out by God in absolute, explicit time and in a certain way so that it can get done. I don't know, with virus going on, with armies rising, with earthquakes happening, volcanoes going off, and people being isolated, I don't know exactly how it's going to work out. So all I can tell you is stand still and see the salvation of the eternal. And then I can add to that a breath later, move forward. For God will take care of you. You can trust Him.